0: Before we begin today's episode, I want to warn you that today's cases are particularly distressing. You know that we don't censor on Cold Case Detective, that we believe it would be disrespectful to those who've been through terrible events to gloss over their tragedy. But today's episode may be more distressing than usual because the primary victims in today's cases are children. And although perhaps it shouldn't be so, Cases involving children, for me at any rate, cut much deeper and are much harder to come to terms with. So I just wanted to give you all a chance to brace yourselves for that. With that in mind, we can begin. Thank you. Loving parents should be able to watch their children grow up and children themselves should be able to experience all the things in life that await them in adulthood buying their first car, falling in love, and finding out who they truly are and what their purpose is in the world. But tragically, as we know, this isn't the case for everyone. Some have their futures stolen from them at a heartbreakingly young age. In today's episode of Cold Case Detective, we'll be discussing three cases of murdered children that continue to go unsolved. Jacqueline Dewalaby on May 17, 1981, Cynthia Dwallaby welcomed her little girl, Jacqueline Marie into the world. Warm, kind, and loving. Jacqueline was the center of her mother's world and the loved stepdaughter of her mother's second husband. Unfortunately, David and Cynthia's chance to see Jacqueline grow and blossom into an adult was cut short when she was brutally murdered in 1988. On the morning of September 10th, 1988, David DeWallaby and his son woke early, trying not to wake the family members who slumbered throughout the house. David noticed the front door was partially open at around 7.15 a.m., but assumed that it was his mother who lived in the basement. Her car wasn't in the drive, so he was satisfied that she had likely left the door open when she was going out. Two hours later, when Cynthia awoke, she headed into Jacqueline's room to wake her for the day but Jacqueline wasn't in her bed. Her duvet was gone too. Frantic, Cynthia searched the home while her husband and son gathered friends and went to search for Jacqueline in the neighborhood, assuming she must have headed out early to play with friends. But no signs of Jacqueline arose despite the search efforts of family and friends. While Cynthia went to a neighbor's house, she noted that a window leading into the basement had been broken. It appeared someone had broken into the house in the middle of the night without the family noticing. The Dwallabies soon alerted authorities. Police and the FBI waited for a ransom call to come as it seemed like whoever had broken into the home had taken Jacqueline, but the call never came and family and friends prayed for the return of the seven-year-old girl. For five days, desperate search parties turned up no evidence of Jacqueline or her potential kidnapper. However, on September 14th, the little girl's body was found in a vacant field near Blue Island, Illinois, six miles from her home. Her comforter and nightdress were found with her, and there was a rope around her neck. Investigators who took on the murder case of Jacqueline Dwallaby focused on two theories. The first was that she'd been randomly kidnapped by a stranger, The second was that Jacqueline was a victim of her own parents who'd killed her for an unknown reason. David and Cynthia were questioned about what the couple had done in the morning of the 10th and authorities suspected that the basement window had been broken from the inside to make it look like an intruder had entered the home. The windowsill still had dust on it, none of which had been shifted. None of the items below the window had been disturbed either. A few days before Jacqueline was found on September 11th, David DeWallaby was subjected to a polygraph test, which he passed. On the day that Jacqueline's body was discovered, he was asked to take another, the results of which were inconclusive. I mention this only to detail the events of the investigation. It is important to note that polygraph tests are not really lie detector tests, and they are certainly not foolproof. Most courts don't allow them into evidence. All in all, they offer us very little to go on. However, these tests were a little more interesting than normal. According to David, the examiner performing the test told him to say yes to every question, but David refused to say it when he was asked if he had killed Jacqueline. He went on to endure five more hours of interrogation before an officer interrupted to say that the seven-year-old's body had been found. Initially, David thought they were lying, trying to force a confession from him but he later found out they were telling the truth. Jacqueline was laid to rest on September 17th. Soon the investigation into a random kidnapping fell away and authorities focused their investigation on Cynthia and David. The Illinois State Police Department along with the Blue Island Police all worked together to build a case against the couple. And in November of 1988, the pair were arrested and charged. Cynthia was two months pregnant at the time. In April of 1990, Cynthia and David Dwallaby went on trial. Much of the evidence against the couple was circumstantial and no concrete forensic evidence tied the pair to the murder. In fact, one piece of forensic evidence proved the basement window had been broken from the outside after all, although this was not enough to clear the couple either. One eyewitness to the prosecution provided a statement which said that he had seen a man resembling David, he had a similar prominent nose, sitting in a parked car near to where the body was found. The defense pointed out that the witness had been about 75 meters away from David at the time he saw him, and that it had been a dark, moonless night. It was also found that the witness had picked David out of a lineup of front-facing pictures, while that same witness had supposedly seen David from the side. David's photograph was also bigger than the others shown. The witness could also only describe the car as dark, although at the time, the couple had a light blue vehicle. Also, before the trial had begun, two other witnesses had come forward to claim that Cynthia's car was seen near the dump sites, but this report was later dismissed as Cynthia's car was proven to have been outside her home at the time witnesses saw it at the location. Outside of some dubious eyewitness reports, the prosecution presented other circumstantial evidence, a bloody pillow found in Jacqueline's room, her brother stating that she was, quote, spanked a lot by their parents, head hairs similar to Jacqueline's found in her parents' trunk, and a neighbor identifying the rope that was found around her neck as one that her brother often played with. However, the blood on the pillow could not be identified and their hairs found in the trunk could not be confirmed as being Jacqueline's. Meanwhile, the defense focused on a possible suspect in the case, a convicted sex offender named Perry Hernandez, who was known to have committed a similar abduction. However, Perry's DNA was tested against that which was found on Jacqueline's body and he was later cleared. During the trial, neither of the Dwallabies testified in their own defense. Eventually, a judge dismissed Cynthia's case as there was simply not enough evidence to put the case in front of a jury. However, David's case was allowed to go ahead. A jury deliberated for three days before finding him guilty of first-degree murder. He was handed a 45-year sentence. Friends and family, led by Cynthia, started a movement to try and free David which caught the attention of a journalist who in turn criticized the conviction on multiple different occasions. In October of 1991, the Illinois Court of Appeals reversed the conviction and David was released. A year later in 1992, an episode of Unsolved Mysteries featured the case. This led to two viewers coming forward to refute the alibi given by Timothy Guess, who was David's brother and Jacqueline's uncle. Timothy was a schizophrenic and claimed to have been working that night, but restaurant workers disputed these claims, although at first they had backed his alibi as they thought Cynthia and David were guilty. Timothy had links to the apartment block next to the vacant field where Jacqueline's body was found. According to one source, Timothy had previously been accused of trying to kidnap his niece, although this isn't widely stated and should not be taken as 100% credible. One journalist claimed that Timothy had told him that a spirit lived inside him and told him the details of the murder. He knew the layout of the family home, despite the fact he'd never been in it before. He was also aware of the fact that a light was on in Jacqueline's closet that night, but not in her bedroom. This specific detail pertaining to Jacqueline's case was never released to the public. Despite this evidence against Timothy Guess, he was never charged and passed away in 2002. Due to the publicity and notoriety of the case, David and Cynthia DeWallaby have since changed their surname. They have also moved away from Illinois, but the memory they leave behind, the case of Jacqueline Marie DeWallaby, remains to this day unsolved. Stephanie Crow on the morning of January 21st, 1998, the family of 12-year-old Stephanie Crow was shocked and distraught when they found her dead on the floor of her bedroom. She had tried to run for help, but had died on her doorway. The young girl who lived in Escondido, California with her grandmother, parents, younger sister, older brother, and family dog had been stabbed nine times. There were no signs of forced entry into the house, and while Stephanie's window was unlocked, the screen was still in place. The surrounding grime and dust had not been disturbed. The sliding doors in the bedroom of Stephanie's parents were found to be unlocked. However, any intruder would have had to sneak past the two without waking them, which seems unlikely. There were no knives anywhere in the home which matched the wounds made on Stephanie's body and no bloody clothing could be found. Later, it was found that the Crow family had a habit of leaving the laundry room door unlocked, a door which they used as their main entrance. To authorities, it seemed quite possible that someone in the family was responsible for the grim murder of a 12-year-old girl. And so the family were questioned extensively. Their clothing was confiscated and their bodies were examined for injuries. Stephanie's parents were put up in a motel while the two children were taken into protective custody at the Polinsky Children's Center. The children were not allowed to see their parents for several days and the police began to interview them without the knowledge of their guardians. Stephanie's older brother, Michael Crowe, who was just 14 at the time of his sister's murder, was taken to the police station several times and was considered the primary suspect by police in their investigation. They believed due to the lack of disturbance in the house and the fact that nobody seemed to wake during the attack that it was an inside job. According to the investigators, Michael seemed distant and preoccupied in the aftermath of the tragedy while the remainder of the family grieved for their lost daughter and sibling. During one of the sessions in which Michael was questioned without the consent or knowledge of his parents, and even without a lawyer present, the police told Michael that they'd found physical evidence linking him with the crime, including her blood in his room and that his hair was found in her grasp. They also claimed that he'd failed a test with a truth verification device and that his parents were convinced that he'd done it. These unjust lies weighed heavily on his shoulders. At just 14 years old, Michael must have felt that the world was against him. After six hours of relentless questioning, he gave a vague confession to the authorities. In the so-called confession, Michael gave no details of the crime and said that he couldn't remember doing it. The only thing he gave that could resemble a motive was that he felt that his sister was more popular than him and that he lived in her shadow. In this same taped interview, later released to the public, he can be heard saying several times over, I'm only saying this because it's what you want to hear. Despite the blatant fact that Michael was lying and that he had been pushed into a false confession by police, the police arrested and charged the 14-year-old boy They cited his interest in violent video games as part of what spurred him to commit the murder of his 12-year-old sister. Two 15-year-old friends of Michael's were also questioned by authorities, Joshua Treadway and Aaron Hauser. Aaron had an extensive collection of knives, one of which was reported missing by his parents. It was later found in Joshua's house, and he admitted he'd taken it from Aaron without permission. Police detained Joshua on charges of petty theft and then questioned him continuously from 9 p.m. till 8 a.m. at their headquarters, telling him that they believed the knife he had possession of was the weapon used in the murder of Stephanie Crow. Two weeks later, Joshua was questioned again. During the 10 hour interview, he eventually broke down and gave a detailed confession. He said he had committed the crime with two other boys. Joshua was subsequently arrested. Aaron Hauser was the last one to be arrested and questioned. He refused to confess, but provided an odd hypothetical situation on how the event might've happened after being prompted to do so by police. All three boys recanted their confessions, however, claiming that they had been coerced into giving false statements. All the while, as the police bullied three young boys into giving confessions, a real suspect was walking the streets. On the day that Stephanie's body was found, a man named Richard Raymond Tweet was interviewed. He was 28 years old, a transient and a schizophrenic with a lengthy criminal record. On the night of the murder, Richard was seen looking into windows and knocking on doors up and down the street. Several neighbors had called the police to report him he had scrapes on his body and a cut on his hand. However, police quickly dismissed him as a suspect in the case, believing he wasn't capable of carrying out the murder. Besides, they had already decided to pin the thing on Stephanie's 14-year-old brother, Michael, in a battery of psychological torture and bullying. Perhaps it mattered little to them to chase up real leads if they could enjoy the sport of tormenting an isolated 14-year-old boy who was still grieving the murder of his 12-year-old sister. Michael Crow, Joshua Treadway, and Aaron Hauser were all charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder. They were each imprisoned for six months as prosecutors prepared for the trial. Just as the trial was set to begin, Stephanie's blood was found on a shirt belonging to Richard Tweet, the transient man who'd been interviewed on the day of the murder. The charges against the three boys were dismissed. Afterwards, the Escondido police fell silent. They abandoned the case for several years without charging anybody with the murder. The case changed hands several times over the course of 2001 and 2002, and the trial against Richard Tweet finally took place in 2004. On the first day of jury selection, Richard managed to get out of the cuffs and consequently took off during a lunch break, boarding a bus. He was reapprehended just hours later, however. Once the trial was underway, the defense claimed that the blood on Richard's shirt had been contaminated by prior shoddy police work and was not real evidence. The prosecution linked Richard to both physical and circumstantial evidence, but on May 26, 2004, the jury acquitted him of murder and convicted him of voluntary manslaughter. Richard was sentenced to 13 years in prison plus an additional four for his earlier attempt to flee. Richard went on to appeal his conviction, raising several claims, including that his Sixth Amendment right had been violated because he was prevented from fully cross-examining a witness for the prosecution. After much debate, a retrial was scheduled for 2013. During the trial, the prosecution could not produce any fingerprints, DNA evidence, or trace evidence on Richard's clothing or in the House of the Crows. They claimed he'd killed Stephanie in anger because she resembled a woman he was looking for, a woman who'd turned him down a few years prior. In December of 2013, a jury found him not guilty. There was no evidence that he had ever been in the home, and they agreed with the defense that the victim's blood could have occurred via contamination. According to Richard, he'd found the shirt in a dumpster, The families of Michael Crow, Aaron Hauser, and Joshua Treadway have since sued the cities of Escondido and Oceanside. And in 2012, all three were cleared of all charges. A judge ruled that they were factually innocent and permanently dismissed the criminal case against them. However, the murder of Stephanie Crow still remains unsolved. Jenny Lynn. 14-year-old Jenny Lynn was a clever and talented young girl who played both the piano and viola while maintaining straight A's in all her classes. She was the only daughter of two professionals, John and May Leanne Lynn, and resided in Castro Valley, California. On May 27th, 1994, Jenny came home from school and chatted on the phone with a friend until around 5.15 p.m. This was routine for Jenny, as she was a popular and well-liked girl with many friends and often spent hours on the phone at all times of day between homework, practicing with her musical instruments and listening to music. At some point shortly after the call, however, Jenny was forced to undress and was stabbed repeatedly in the bathroom on the second floor of her home. She had been bound with duct tape Her father found her body when he returned home from work at around 6.45 p.m. Authorities were immediately called to the scene. Upon first inspection of the home, police, with help from the family, found that nothing had been stolen, suggesting that the motive behind the crime was not burglary. Investigators believe that the killer entered the home via a broken window or the sliding glass door. It's believed to be possible that the killer had intended on sexually assaulting Jenny, but was interrupted in some way. Bloodhounds were utilized at the scene and they managed to track the scent through a field behind the family's home. It's possible that this was the killer's escape route. Jenny's case only gets stranger from here, however, as John Lynn, her father, came forward with a possible clue in the investigation. He told authorities that on or around May 12th, 1994, between six and 7.30 p.m., a man approached him at the Bay Fair BART station in San Leandro, California, and said, "'I have a proposition for you. "'I got your daughter.'" John was able to provide a description of the odd man, and thus a composite sketch of him was created. The man is described as being an adult male around 30 to 45 years of age at the time in 1994. He was around five foot eight to six foot and thin with gaunt features. However, the investigating authorities do not consider this man a person of interest. For over a decade, John and Mei Lian Lin waited for answers and for justice so that they could finally begin to heal and overcome the tragedy that hit their family. Then in 2006, police named their prime suspect as Sebastian Alexander Shaw, a Vietnamese man born in 1967. Sebastian was arrested in August of 1994, where he was found with a stolen car and two rifles, taken from San Ramon, just three days after Jenny's cold-blooded murder. Sebastian was also in possession of a, quote, murder kit, including surgical gloves, a ski mask, duct tape, knives, binoculars, and plastic wrist ties like those used by police. The man already has a long criminal history as he had already three murder convictions and claimed to have killed 10 to 12 people. However, although this lead in Jenny's case does look promising, there simply isn't enough evidence to link Sebastian to the crime and find a conviction it has not been publicly stated what made police come to Sebastian as a suspect. Earlier in the investigation, the FBI thought it was likely that the perpetrator was local in the community who knew Jenny and knew her routine. It was for a time speculated by online sleuths that Tommy Lynn Sells was responsible for the murder, but this theory has long since been discarded. In the aftermath of the tragedy, Jenny's parents started the Jenny Lynn Foundation, which honors the 14 year old through community programs. The charitable organization sponsors many events in the East Bay area, such as the youth music camp, scholarships for young musicians, and safety awareness education. Although her parents fight to keep her case alive, Jenny's murder remains to this day unsolved. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations. And remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.